Well, good morning again. My name is Joel. I'm the senior pastor here, and we are glad to have you here with us this morning, worshiping with us here as well as worshiping with us online. A little little history for us this morning to see how how good Jim you can't answer you know the answer already um, to see if you know this date and why this date was important February 22nd 1980 some of you weren't even born I was a senior in high school at the time February 22nd anybody got any guesses Mark Sherman's not here he'd know this one right off the bat there you go why Boy, there you go. That's the day, the miracle on ice, the day that the U.S. hockey team, the upstart U.S. hockey team, which was made up of college kids, beat the Russian team who was made up of professional hockey players. Fast forward 20 years, fast forward 20 years to the Sydney Olympics, and there was another miracle. Wasn't that much, heard that of that much, but it was as big a miracle as what the miracle on ice was. It was in the gold medal round of the Greco-Roman wrestling the two opponents were a guy by the name of Alexander Carolyn. Alexander Carolyn was six foot three, two 286 pounds of solid muscle. The guy was a beast. He looked like he'd been chiseled out of granite. And when he stood there, they, caught, they talked about all of his past achievements. He is a 12-time world champion. At that time, he was a three-time, um, he was a three-time uh, consistent gold what do you say? It's where he'd won three gold medals in a row at the Olympics, and he was looking for his fourth. He was a nine-time European uh, gold medal champion. The guy in, in the years leading up to that Olympics in Sydney, 13 years he had never lost a match. And in the six years coming up to that Olympics, no one had ever scored a point on him. To say that he was a hands-down favorite to win the gold medal in Greco-Roman wrestling was an understatement. I don't think there was anybody in that place, save the opponent's parents and family, who thought that this guy even had a chance. Because the guy standing next to him was a guy by the name of Roland Gardner. Roland Gardner was from the United States. He grew up on a dairy farm in Wyoming. He, was, he had a huge, he, just, he had a massive, his 56-inch chest at kind of looked a little round and a little pudgy and didn't look like he had much of a chance at all. But when they rang the bell, it looked, Alexander Carolyn, he went into all of his patented moves. And Roland Gardner, he just kind of hung on for dear life. And in the second round, Alexander Carolyn broke his grip. And I don't know anything about Greco-Roman wrestling, but you can't do that. And he scored a point. Roland Gardner scored a point. That was the only point that he needed for that round. With two seconds left to go, Alexander Carolyn dropped his hands again, realizing that he'd lost the match, realizing for the first time in 13 years he'd lost and someone had scored a point on him. And while he's doing this, Roland Gardner is literally doing somersaults and cartwheels in, in the ring because he won. As we meet Elijah today, there's a challenge. But it's not against with two heavyweights like this for a gold medal. What is at stake is the hearts and the lives and the minds of the people of Israel. What's at stake was, who is truly God? And who is it that you truly serve? And that's a question that we bring home right here. Who is it that you say is truly God? And who is it that you truly serve? Because we can serve all kinds of other gods. We can say that God is God, but who do you truly serve? It is a question that we must answer. It is a question that we must come to grips with. And who do we truly serve? That also is a question that we need to answer. As we open up today, we open up with this same phrase. After a long time, in the third year of the 
third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. There's that phrase again. Every time you see that phrase, what do we know by this time? That it's another chapter in Elijah's life. And it's been a long time. It's been three years. Elijah's been in the wilderness. He first comes to Ahab and tells him, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And it doesn't. And then God hides him in the, brook, in the region of the Kareth Ravine. And while he's there, God is doing work in Elijah's heart. What's he doing? He's causing him to learn what it means to trust in him. And every day that Elijah is there, he sees God do what? He brings him bread and he brings him meat every single day, twice a day. I wonder if there as well is where Elijah learns to pray. Because Elijah is a man of prayer and he learns to pray. And we know that in that time, we know that in our lives, God will sometimes put us away for a time to teach us something about himself or ourself that we would never learn had we not walked through that time. But then God takes him from there and he takes him to Zarephath. And he's not done with him yet. He's got further refining in his life. God is never done with us. When God is done with us is when they begin pouring the dirt over the top of us and put the grass over the top of us. That's when God's done. Up until then, God is not done with you, all right? Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how young you are, God is at work in your lives. And God was at work in Elijah's life doing some further refining. Why does God do that? God refines us, God does his work in us and refines our heart to match with the assignment that he has for us. Do not discount what it is that God is doing in your life right now. You may say, I don't like this, I don't want this, I don't want to be in this place. But can we embrace it and say that in the midst of this time, God is good and God is in this? Uh, can we or can't we? That's a tough one. But God is in this and God is good. And now God moves him now to the next place. And he says, go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. And verse 2 says, so Elijah went and presented himself. And we think, okay, so what? This is a big deal. Why? Why is this such a big deal for him to go back to Ahab? And why was it such a big deal that he obeyed God? Ahab, or Elijah is a wanted man. Remember, Ahab is looking all over Israel for, for Elijah. And for Elijah to go back there is kind of dangerous, isn't it? And we would say, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But what does Elijah continually do? He continually says yes to God. He continually chooses to do that which will honor God. And remember what I said in the first sermon. What I said in the first sermon was, one of the expectations that God has upon us is that we will honor him. That we will honor him with our lives. To honor God means that I must be involved with removing those things from my life that don't honor him. And Elijah continually seeks to honor God with his life. How in the world can he do this? How in the world can he be obedient like this? There's, there's a love in his heart for God and there's a willingness to serve God. Ugh, this crazy thing. Sorry about this. There's a willingness to serve God in his heart. But as a servant of God, as a child of God, we are called to... Can I get a different mic, please? Sorry about this. Sorry for you folks watching.
Okay, there we go. All right. So how was Elijah able to do this? I mean, you think about it. He is willing to go back to Ahab. He's not only obedient, but he does it in the power of the Lord. God never asks us to do anything in our own strength and in our own power. As I've been talking and as I've been challenging us over this last month to say yes to God, God will never call you to say yes to him and do what it is that he's calling you to do in, in, your, in and of your own strength and power. God always calls us to do things in his strength and in his own power. That takes away a lot of the, a lot of the excuses, doesn't it? When we say, well, I don't have the time, I don't have the ability, I don't have the wisdom, I don't have this, I don't have that. This removes a lot of it because God didn't call you to do it in your own strength, in your own ability, in your own wisdom. And Elijah goes back, he does that which is hard, but we too have been called, haven't we? We've all been called by God, he says, for it is God's, God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. God is the one who sends us out, but God never sends us out in our own strength and in our own power. He says, but you will receive power. If you are a child of God, if you are a Jesus follower, the moment that you prayed to receive Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be what? You will be my witnesses. That's not an option. That's not if you want to be. That's a command. Because God comes with the full expectation that if Jesus is the best thing since sliced bread, and knowing that you have been forgiven of your sins is what people need to know. And if you have this hope, why on earth would you keep it to yourself? I think about hope in the midst of where we are right now. Two weeks ago, walking out of church, it was a really, really cold Sunday. And I walked out and saw all the police cars on the railroad bridge right over here. Somebody jumped off the railroad bridge down to the tracks. When they're within yards of a place where they can find hope, and I think about this church, we're at a place where people can find hope. And we need to share that hope with the people that are around us. What drove that person to that? And I think about others who just live right here in this neighborhood. Do they need the hope of Christ that we have? They do. Why on earth would we ever keep this a secret to ourselves? Why would we keep it to ourselves? He says, you'll be my witnesses. He doesn't call us to do what it is that he's calling us to do in our own strength and in our own power. You know why? Because that leads to burnout. When we do stuff in our own strength and in our own power, it oftentimes leads to burnout. It leads to grump, 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 grumpy saints as well. We're not happy because we're doing it. Why am I not being recognized? Why is nobody looking at what it is that I'm doing? Again, what are you doing it for and who are you doing it for? Are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for the Lord? God calls us to do things in his power, in his strength, in his way so that he gets the glory and not us. Well, Elijah meets back up with Ahab. And when Elijah sees Ahab, Ahab says to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? That word troubler is a word that means it's like you snake in the grass, literally. He says, is that you, you snake in the grass? And, and Elijah says, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the, followed the Baals. Never underestimate the effect that your obedience will have on your generation and on generations to come. Little did my father know when he prayed to receive Christ at the age of 30, the effect that that would have on his family and on the family to come. And the opposite is true. Little do we know 
how our disobedience will affect the generation coming behind us and the generation after that. Ahab's disobedience not only hurt him, but hurt the nation of Israel as well. There's something about this comment as well. Who does Ahab push the blame onto? This is an all play. On Elijah. Was it Elijah's fault? How many times when you, when you encounter somebody and you look at what's going on in their life, they say, well, it's not really my fault. I mean, I, I didn't grow up in a good home, and I had this against me, and I had that against me. And at what point do we own what it is that we've done? At what point do we finally say, yes, I had a part to play in this? Because when God lays his hand on our lives, he will always speak the truth in love and lovingly, won't he? And he points out things in our life that don't honor him. And when he points those things out, what should our response be? Well, Lord, I, I, I get that, but I'm really not that bad. I really didn't do that that many times or whatever. At what point do we say, God, you're right? At what point do we say, God, you are right, and God, this is something that you are absolutely right, something that needs to change? For Ahab, it wasn't his fault. At what point do we own what it is that we've done and say, God, would you forgive me? God, would you forgive me? Is there hope? Is there hope when we've made a mess of things in our lives? And listen, God isn't, God isn't put off by our past. God isn't put off by the messes in our lives. If we're willing to come back to God, I was talking recently with a person, and it's, they were talking about um, the fact that they feel so far away from God. And I said uh, to, to a friend, I said, it isn't because God moved. It's because we moved. But yet God is willing to take us back. He's not put off by our past. He's willing to take us back. The question is, will we come back? And Elijah, there's something about this as well. He's not intimidated. He's absolutely not intimidated. He will be next week as we talk. He is going to be intimidated big time. But today he's not intimidated. Why? Because he knows what it is that he's doing is because what, this is what God wants him to do. And he's the one giving the commands. And what it is that he wants is he wants all of the, all the prophets of Baal, all the prophets of Asherah to gather, and they're going to have a challenge. What they're going to see is who is truly God and who is it that you truly serve. And he calls them to come to this place, Mount Carmel. Elijah has been spending his time up to the north in, in that area of what we know as today modern-day Lebanon. He's been hiding up there. That's where Zarephath was at. But now he comes down here and he says, bring all those people to Mount Carmel. This is what Mount Carmel looks like today. And he says, bring them up there. And he says, and we're going to have a challenge. And as they come there, he says to them, as you come there, imagine the scene. You've got the 450 prophets of Baal, the 450, 400 prophets of Asherah. That's 800 people. You've got the kings, the king's whole court there. And then you've got the people of the nation of Israel. And Elijah speaks to them. And what he says next is so important. Because he says to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. What did they say? They said nothing. They said nothing. Because see, in, in their mind's eye, if you were to ask them, do you believe in God? It's a question I ask, or I hear it. I hear it when people say to them, well, I believe in God. And I want to say, great, what do you believe about him? 
Because even the demons believe in God, and it says that they shudder. It isn't just enough to say that I believe in God. What do you believe about him? And the fact with these people here, these Israelites, they were in two camps. While they believed in God, if you were to ask them, do you believe in the Lord God of Israel? They would say, yeah. But we also believe in Asherah and in Baal. And what's wrong with us being able to believe over here, believe in God, but also to partake in the things of Baal and Asherah? What's wrong with that? And there are many in our world today who would say the very same thing. Hey, I, I, I like the thing, some of the things about Christianity, but there's some of the stuff about Christianity that uh, I, just, uh, I just don't agree with, I just don't like. But there, and there are things about Buddhism that I really like about Buddhism, or the things about Islam, or things about Eastern religions that I like, and we treat it kind of like a smorgasbord. Well, I'll take a little bit of this, and I'll take a little bit of that, and I'll take a little bit of this. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong. And what's wrong with that is this. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way, and that way is through Christ. And when we pick and choose, the exclusivity of Christ is lost. It says there is one God and one mediator between man and God. One. And we need to make the choice of who is it that we are going to, who is it in our lives that is truly God. For them, they would say, well, we choose to worship, we choose to believe in God, and we choose to believe and worship these other gods. What's wrong with that? And Elijah says, why do you waver? That word to waver means literally to limp. Why do you limp between two different opinions? Because when God is not truly God in your life, when the God of your life is the God of money, the God of pleasure, the God who makes me look good, the God of wisdom, whatever it might be, the God of things, when that thing is God in your life, God isn't God in your life. Many times, the gods that we have in our life is a God of our own making. Because the God of our own making is a God who, he won't push me too hard in this area. He won't push me too hard in that area. I can do pretty much what I want to do. I can come in. I can go to church. I can say the right things in church and the right things around people. But I can still have my own life, right? And the problem is why, what's the problem with that? Is that our testimony suffers as a result of it. Remember many years ago, it was a year between, uh, I'd just come back from the Philippines and um, was not living for the Lord at all. I'd been on a mission trip all summer long, was not living for the Lord after that. I didn't go back to, to college. There were some things with the loan, so I couldn't go back to college. And so I spent a year just working, and I worked at a lumber yard. And guys there were pretty tough guys, and uh, yeah, my testimony wasn't, wasn't very good at all. And I remember one day, uh, something happened, and I let out a string of, of comments that were not good. And I turned around, and who's standing behind me? But Becca's dad. <laughs> Pastor Ketzel. And it's like, oh, and he heard everything that I said. And I felt like, oh, my goodness, now what? And he never pushed me on it. He never brought it up. He knew and I knew that my testimony stunk. I had no testimony among those guys. And when your testimony is such that you're living in two different worlds, your testimony is going to suffer. And here's why it's going to suffer. Because Jesus said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. What is it that God desires to see? What is it that God expects to see in us? 
We've been talking about expectations. What is it that God expects to see in us? He expects to see a reflection of himself in us. And when we are living in two different worlds, our testimony suffers, and Christ is not the one that's lifted up. So let me ask a question. So who is God in your life? Who is true? See, this is such an important question. Jesus, just before he went to the cross, goes to a northern area of, of Israel, up north of the Sea of Galilee. It's an area known as Caesarea Philippi. And in that region of Caesarea Philippi, people came off from all over to worship the god Pan. Pan was the god of the underworld. There was a cave there, and a river went into that cave. And the people believed that was the entrance to the, to the underworld because there was no real exit to that, that river in the, or that cave. And so they would come and they would worship there in the fall when things began to get colder and they would pray to Pan asking him, you know, please don't allow the winter to be so bad. In spring, they would thank Pan again as the spring came back. And it's at that place Jesus asks the most important question. And he says, who do men say that I am? And it wasn't an egotistical question. It would be for any one of us to say, who do people say that I am? But he was God. And he said, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say that you are, are John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah. Others say that you are Jeremiah. Or others say that you are just one of the prophets. But then he hones in and he says, but who do you say that I am? That is the most important question that any of us will ever have to answer. Who do you say that he is? And Peter pipes up and says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. How about you? How about us? Who do we say that he is? Is he truly God in our lives? Because God will not share his throne with anybody else in our life or any other thing in our life. And that question is one, when the Israelites, when the Israelites were poised with this question, what did they say? Nothing. This is not a question that we can leave unanswered. It's a question that we have to ask ourselves. And I wonder if, for many of us, before we leave the parking lot today, if that isn't a question that we have to answer. Who is Lord? Who is Lord? And who is it that I'm truly serving? Because as Elijah goes on, and I'm going to come back to this. As Elijah goes on, he asks this question because it's not enough for us to just simply recognize who God is. God desires to be re revered. He desires to be worshipped. And sometimes we can give head assent to God. Yeah, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, what, what's, what's, what's wrong with that? Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I read my Bible. Great. But when things come down to it, who's truly God? Who's truly God in our lives? Because sometimes there are other things in our lives that are God. We have things in our lives like our pleasure, our safety, things like that, that we would say, those are really dear to me. God desires to not to be recognized, but to be reverenced. So Elijah, here's the challenge. He says to them, get two bulls and let them choose, let them choose one for themselves. Let it, cut it be cut into pieces and put on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the, on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of, your, of the Lord your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Now the people talk. And they said, what you say is good. Why did they say the God who answers by fire, he's God? Because Baal was the God of fire. Baal was also the God of rain. And obviously he'd been shown to be impotent in that. He couldn't bring the rain. Could he bring the fire as well? 
And they begin, they begin with the sacrifice. And it says, so they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. This would have started at about uh, 9 o'clock in the morning. Now it goes till noon. It says, they said, oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they'd made. That line there, there was no answer. There was no response. Is a sad, is a sad commentary, isn't it? It's the commentary of literally millions, if not billions, of people around the world who pray, and there's no one to answer, who pray, and there's no response. And I think about even in, our, even in our area here, there's many who today who don't believe in God. The question is, is the God that you pray to, is he going to answer? Is the God of materialism, the God of pleasure, the God of safety, the God of status? When you pray to that God, does, does he answer? Because when we pray to God, does he answer us? Listen to what his word says. His word says, before they call, I will answer. And while they're still speaking, I will hear. God's timing when we pray is impeccable, isn't it? He's never early. He's never late. His timing is absolutely perfect. I've told this story before, but it bears telling. When we were in Minnesota, um, we had a really good problem. We had a church that Awana was a huge ministry, and every place in that church was full on Wednesday nights with kids learning verses and doing all kinds of stuff. The problem was that we also had a pretty good-sized youth group who had no place to meet. We tried doing it after Awana, but sometimes parents didn't get out of there till like 9 o'clock, and that didn't set well with the other parents who wanted their kids home a little earlier than that. Uh, we tried doing it off-site. That didn't work. We tried doing it on another night. Didn't work. And one day our youth pastor came and said, what if we built a dedicated youth building on our property? And I said, okay. We looked at, he brought that to the board and we looked at it. We looked in our building fund, what we had. We had $100,000. And they came back and the committee met and they came back and said, it will cost us $200,000 to build that. And so all we have to come up with is $100,000. So we, uh, we formed the building committee and they met and unbeknownst to me, they had made a decision. They had made a decision that they were going to trust God for the amount. They weren't going to go into debt. They were going to trust God for the $100,000. I didn't know that. It's Mother's Day weekend. I go away to see my mom, and I come back on Monday morning, and I ask my secretary, so how things go yesterday? And she said, I don't have any idea. I was up north visiting my mom. And so the afternoon comes, and she comes busting into my office. Pastor, you got to see this. And she hands me an envelope. And the envelope is from the Orchard Foundation. It was a group within our denomination that people can give money to to invest. And it goes back to building churches and things like that. It says, please find enclosed a check for $100,000. I'd never seen so many zeros in all my life. And it's like, what? And it's from an anonymous donor, and it was for the building fund. And I, I, I went into the sanctuary. I laid the letter down before the Lord. I said, God, thank you. I don't know what, and that we had just been talking about this. And so I called the, the chairman of the building committee. I said, Lynn, what on earth did you say on Sunday morning? And he said, he said I gave an impassioned PowerPoint presentation. And he said, folks, we got 10 weeks, 10 weeks to raise $100,000. He said, we're believing that we can raise $10,000 every week this summer in order, to pay, in order to be able to build that building debt-free. 
And I said, well, Lynn, I said, the Lord has provided. He's like, what? What do you mean? I said, I got a check today for $100,000 towards this building. And he was just elated. And I said, well, wait a second. I said, what did you guys say? What did you guys decide as a, as a building committee? And he said, well, we decided that we didn't want to go into debt. We decided we wanted to trust God for the $100,000. And I said, what day did you do that? And he said, on the 23rd. When I looked at the check, that was the exact date that the check was cut. The person who wrote the check or the person who, who said, send that money out, didn't know the decision that was being made in a boardroom. But God knew. Before they call, I will answer. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. What are you trusting God for? Remember, remember last week we talked about not being, not being afraid to ask God for big things? How about relationships? Any relationships in the room that could use the touch of the Lord? <laughs> oh, yeah, probably. How about an addiction? We hide those well, don't we? How about unforgiveness and relationships with others? Can, can we ask God for healing in those areas? Can we trust God for those? We certainly can. Because when David prayed this, he said, Hear my voice when I call, O Lord, and be merciful to me when I answer. The God that we serve is a living God. And he delights to hear the prayers of his children. He delights in them. And he says, he says as well, call unto me and I will call unto me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. It's an invitation. He says, call to me, and I will answer. Call to me, and I will answer. Elijah's going to find this out in just a minute. When the prophets of Baal, when they prayed to their God, he didn't answer. As a Jesus follower, when you pray, does God hear you pray? He does. He does. Is God able to answer the requests of your heart? For a child to come back to the Lord? For God to work in the midst of an absolutely impossible situation? He is. See, when, when, Elijah, when Elijah sets up the altar, it says they came to him. He, he called the people to himself. He came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. How long had it been since there had been a true sacrifice on that altar? And it was in ruins. Now, sometimes I think what keeps us from, from coming to the Lord, coming back to the Lord, is is our past. And when Elijah comes, he rebuilds. We want to be used by the Lord. But man, my past is such a, such a, uh, such a stumbling block. And yet, when we come before the Lord and say, God, I want, to, I want to be used by you again. Oftentimes, before the Lord uses us, before he works in, in us or through us, he works in us to rebuild what it is that he wants to see in us. And that's, not, that's often not fun, is it? You're going to see a slide in a minute. But oftentimes, when we answer that question, who is truly God? And I pray that you answer that question today. But as we answer that question, as God places his hands on those things where he's not God, 
He calls for sacrifice. Sacrifice by nature is not, is not pleasant, is it? When Elijah places the bull on the, on the altar, it had to die, didn't it? And when God works in our lives, there are things that have to go and things that we must give up in order for him to be Lord in our lives. And without sacrifice, there can be no blessing. That's one of your ones that's on there. Without sacrifice, there can be no blessing. And he arranges the stones. And he, he arranges the stones and he cuts a trench around it. And he says to them, put water on it. Now, I don't know where the water came from. I get it. It's a drought. I don't know. Someone has said, well, Mount Carmel is pretty close to the ocean. I don't think the big thing is, is the water. Because I don't think the water was an issue to God. And I don't think our past and our situations that we bring to God are an issue with God. If we are willing to give them to God, is God able to work in the midst of them? He absolutely is. It's not an issue. But what is, what is Elijah up to? I think he wants there to be absolutely no doubt in the world as to who is God. Absolutely no doubt. And look at his prayer. You talk about a simple prayer. There's your one there. Without sacrifice, there can be no blessing. Look at his prayer. He said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that the people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. A simple prayer. I mean, we don't have to go into long and lengthy prayers when we pray to God. We can just simply whisper a prayer, God, help. God, have mercy upon me. God, would you work in the midst of this situation? It was just a simple prayer. But what was the basis of this prayer? It was trust. It was trust and absolute belief. Where did he learn to trust? Where did he learn to believe? Back at the brook is where he learned to believe and trust. Back in Zarephath is where he learned. See, God was working in his life up to this point. And when he prays, what, is God, what happens? What do you think happens? Because God is, God is honoring this prayer. Then fire from the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Can you imagine that? What a boom that must have been. I mean, the stones are gone. The water is gone. The wood is gone. I can see a black hole in the ground, I mean, where, that sac where everything was. And what did the people say? The people, this is interesting. Now the people say, when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and called, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What's wrong with that, though? They were convinced, weren't they? But when Elijah goes into Jezreel next week, what does he find? Does he find a massive revival going on? He doesn't. That's part of what leads him into his downturn. There's the expectation that when, when they see what it is that God has done, that their hearts are going to turn. See, they're convinced, but they're not convicted. Three years of famine didn't convince them, didn't bring about conviction. People can be convinced that there is a God, but God is not looking to just be recognized. He's looking to be reverenced. He can be convinced, but does it lead to conviction? Conviction that brings about change. We can believe that God is God, but does it lead to a change in the way in which I live? Does it lead to a change in the way in which I serve God?
for what God is looking for is not just conviction, not just be convinced, but that we are convicted that leads to repentance. And this is what's not found here. They believe. They're convinced. And when, and when, they, when they're not convinced, when they're not convicted, it doesn't lead to any change in their lives. When the fire fell, let me just do the last slide here and then, then we're done. Elijah built the altar, but God's the one who brings the fire. In our lives, in our lives, God is the one who brings about the conviction. How does God do that? If we are truly living for the Lord, how does that happen? It happens when Christ is the one that is seen in our lives. As we walk through issues and as we trust God, who's lifted up in the midst of those times? God is. And he is the one who's seen. We put the stuff on the altar. God is the one who brings the fire. God is the one who brings the conviction. God never expects us to do anything in our own strength and in our own power. And God never expects people to be changed just because of what they've seen in our lives. God expects them to be changed because they're convicted, because the Holy Spirit has been speaking to their heart about something. God's the one who brings the fire. But in our lives, if God is not the one who's lifted up, if God is not the one who's seen, it's just a good story without the fire. Remember many years ago, I uh, was at our general council and was listening to the, the president of the Christian Missionary Alliance from Canada. Wow, that guy could speak. That guy had fire in his belly. And he was talking about when he was in college. And when he was in college, he was a counselor at a camp, he and three other guys. And it was their responsibility every night to do the, um, what do you call it, the, the, the evening message at the campfire. And it was this story that they were talking about. And they said, hey, why don't we do a visual tonight? We won't light the campfire tonight. We'll just tell the story around a, around a dark, without, you know, around the dark campfire. And they said, what we'll do is this. You see that tree right over there by the campfire? He said, let's run a wire up to that tree. And he said, well, I have one of the guys sit up there. This is what we'll do. We'll take a roll of toilet paper and we'll soak it in gasoline. And then in the afternoon, he said, we'll soak the logs in the, in the fire, he said, in, the, in the campfire area. We'll soak those with gasoline too. And he said, and when, the, and when we get to the part of the message where, and fire fell from heaven, he said, then I'll, one of us will throw that roll of toilet paper down and it will light the logs on fire. Woof. And he said, what a great visual, right? So the time came. All the kids came and they sat around. And where's the, where, where's the light? You know, he said, yeah, we're going to get to that. So it got to the point in the story, and fire fell from heaven. And all of a sudden, you see this roll of toilet paper burning, coming down. And it gets down to the bottom of the, of the fire, or the, of the wood, and does nothing. It realizes the gasoline it evaporated a long time ago. And some smart aleck eighth grade boy in the back says, nice story, but where's the fire? And in our lives... Our lives can be just a nice story, but it can lack the fire, the fire of God. If our lives are not being lived where God is God alone, and he is the one that I truly serve, it's just a nice story, but it lacks the fire. God is the one who seeks to work in us and through us. 
And that involves sacrifice, doesn't it? So what today, and trust me, before this message went to you, it had to go to me. And I had to, there's some things that had to go on the altar for me too. What would it be today that God would say that needs to, that needs to come on the altar? Or what would it be today where God would say, what do you think about what pastor said this morning? Am I truly God in your life or am I not? Am I truly the one that you're serving or am I not? How, 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 you, how would you answer that one? And how would you answer that one? Because it is a question that we have to answer. We cannot do like the people of Israel and say nothing. We have to answer that question. Who do you say that he is? And who is it that you are truly serving? We build the altar, but God brings the fire. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word this morning. And I thank you, Lord, for the fact that our past doesn't, uh, isn't an issue to you. You can rebuild broken lives that they look far better than what they ever did. You can take a life that everyone else says is worthless and use it powerfully for your kingdom. God, you are in the practice of bringing beauty out of ashes. And Lord, this morning I pray for those who this morning are struggling because not only are they convinced, but they're convicted. They're stuck at the place of their past. And Lord, the water was not an issue to you. And neither is our past. If that's you this morning, come to Jesus. He's the one who forgives. He's the one who chooses to remember it no more. And he's the one who chooses to work in and through you. Father, as we have heard your word this morning, you are not a God who will share your throne with any other, but you are a God who desires to be the only God because you are the only God. And you desire to be the one that's worshipped in our lives, truly worshipped and truly served. Holy Spirit, would you be the one that speaks to our hearts? And I would even pray, don't, don't let us go. Don't let us go another day without truly answering this question. Because our lives have an effect on other lives. And Lord, I pray, I pray that as we are obedient and do what it is that you call us to do, that it will have an effect not only on our families, but on generations to come. And I also pray, God, for those things that we trust you with. When Elijah prayed, he trusted you. Lord, for some of us, 
Today is a day where we begin to trust you with things that we've never given to you before. And I pray that, Lord, in your way, that you would not only hear, but that you would answer. And, Lord, I would ask, I would humbly ask as your child, that when you answer, you would answer in such a way that they would know that it is you who is at work. God, I pray for this church, and I pray that we would be a place of hope. It grieves my heart that somebody is in such a desperate place that they would jump from a bridge within yards of the church. And God, I pray that you would use us as a church to bring the hope of Christ, not only into this neighborhood, but to all of Sheboygan and to southern Wisconsin as well. I pray that your name would be lifted up, lifted up in our lives and lifted up in this church. Because, Lord, again, you said when you were lifted up, you would draw all men unto yourself. And, Father, that's what I pray for, that you would be lifted up and that you would draw all men unto yourself. Lord, go with us in this week. Continue to speak the message to our heart and do what only you can do in our lives. And I give you the glory in advance in Jesus' precious name.